Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Thanks for joining me today for this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. I have a special guest with me, Chalcedon's Vice President Martin Salbretti, who has agreed to discuss his recent essay in the Chalcedon publication, Arise and Build. Thanks for joining me today, Martin. Pleasure's all mine, Andrea. All right. So you entitled your essay, Mediocre Commission. You put a question mark after it, so it's meant to be read as a question. And you were referring to the Lord's parting words prior to his ascension, what we refer to as the Great Commission of Matthew 28, 18 through 20. So based on your overall thesis in this essay, would you say that the church has been guilty of dereliction of duty when it comes to the Great Commission? And why do you think that is? I believe the church has been guilty, and I'm not the only one who's been saying this uh, since the Reformation. Uh, we can find this strain of thought among many astute Bible expositors who've noticed that the church has become ingrown and has not acted upon the, uh, the final commands of Christ in any serious way. Uh, and uh, the reasons for it, I think, are, are multitudinous. Some argue for theological objections. Many argue practical objections. In other words, the uh, ex- argument from expedience, um, which then boils down to slothfulness. And I've said many times, and the scripture is clear on this, slothfulness is a moral failure. Uh, we learn about this when the indictment comes down. I think it's in Matthew 25. Uh, Thou wicked and slothful servant, for example, uh, words from Christ. He associates that. So I think we need to really take a good hard look at what Christ commanded and not allow anyone to rewrite those orders. Not our pastors, not our theologians, not our seminaries, not a pope, nothing. Uh, we need to take it exactly as it stands written, and we need to operate in terms of it and uh, take those words seriously. They amount to uh, his sending instructions prior to his ascension. And considering that they're prefixed with his point that he has all power and authority in heaven and on earth, uh, it certainly is a very, very significant statement because he then says, therefore, in light of that, this is my instruction to you. Uh, he asserts full sovereignty over everything and then gives us our, our orders. Therefore, I think it's a very bold move for anyone to say, well, I have more power and authority over your instructions and I can alter them. I think that's a, a catastrophic mistake, and it's one that the church is still reeling from. And unfortunately, what we have done is to take our failure and then rewrite that as a new form of victory. We've essentially altered the, the marching orders so we don't look so bad, so we don't look like we're slothful, like we're actually quite reasonable Christians doing no more than what Christ really has asked. And so people then barge on in and then rewrite the Great Commission. And by rewriting those orders, we don't look so terrible. We don't look like we're um, lazy or slothful or unobservant of what Christ has commanded or disrespecting his sovereignty. But the reality is that's all window dressing, and we're going to pay a high price for it. And the world pays a high price for it when it's not discipled as it's supposed to be. Okay. Let me, let me stop you there for a section, for a second. You basically made the statement that, and you say this in your essay, that what we call the Great Commission has two parts, and you referenced the first part, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Christ, therefore. So how did he get devalued? What was the process by which, what was it, hyperbole on his part, that you know all authority as opposed to some authority? Why is it that people don't take it as using the Lord's name in vain to make him less than sovereign in every area of life. Well, there are different strategies to arrive at that. They might say, well, Christ ascended, but he's not on a throne in Jerusalem, and therefore, until that happens, he's not really exercising his authority, his lordship, and therefore, until such time as he is lord, we don't have to worry about this too much. He himself is not taken unto himself 
the very authority that he claims, he is uh, waiting to exert it. And we can be content with this parenthesis, this waiting period during which uh, we stay in neutral, the car is running, the air conditioning is fine, but we're not going anywhere. And this suits a lot of people, and there are uh, theologians that will argue this. There are theological systems of thought that will justify the notion that Christ is not now king or lord or exercising any of the sovereignty that's implied here, that it's positional but not real. And uh, that's why I say arguments that use various refinements of theology are used to try to paint a different picture than what actually appears in Matthew 28. Mutilation that I'm concerned with, this mutilation in the, not only in the marching orders, but even to an extent uh, about Christ's own sovereignty. They'll say, well, still, Paul calls uh, Satan the uh, prince of the power of the air and the prince of this world, et cetera, et cetera. Therefore, that's the true sovereignty, the true authority now, and that creates problems, and we should take Christ's words with a grain of salt as if Paul had somehow corrected Jesus on this point. I see. Okay, so based on that view that you just um, exposited, that he didn't really mean it, he didn't mean it for now, it's only when he comes back, then he really sent the early church on a fool's errand. In essence, they were uh, being martyred uh, in light of what they thought was the correct thing to do, which was to disciple the nations. That's why they went boldly everywhere. Uh, once uh, they were uh, separated out into the nations. Um, but all of a sudden, we've lost our steam. I mean, the, the church turned the world upside down. This was even the complaint in the book of Acts, <laughs> as well as in, in the gospel. As these disciples are turning the world upside down. And uh, that power was there. It's still there now, but we're not using it. We have decided to lay down these spiritual weapons that are mighty to the tearing down of strongholds and instead argue for... Uh, a little folding of the hands, a little sleep, a little rest. All right. So how much do you think this has to do with the antinomian tenor that the Bible doesn't mean what it says in all areas and we have to chill out a bit because if we go too full steam on what the Bible says here in the Old Testament or the New Testament, that we're going to lose people as opposed to win them. Of course, that problem goes all the way back to Marcion, who basically scrapped most of the Old Testament, except some happy Psalms, and uh, also struck out the Gospel of Matthew as being too Jewish. Uh, they liked the Gospel of John and the epistles of uh, Paul. Uh, but anything that uh, reeked of the Old Testament law, uh, Marcion removed it. So he truncated the Bible. Uh, now we do it with more finesse and PhD theologians doing the refining and the snipping away, but it, it's still done. In principle, Marcionitism, uh, or Marcionism, if you will, uh, still exists except under different names, different justifications. We're not so bold as to actually take the Gospel of Matthew and toss it, uh, but we'll say uh, that's not intended for the church. This is the Gospel for the Jews, and we would then in principle uh, agree with Marcion, uh, but uh, not use go to his excess of actually de destroying or removing it. Uh, but the a result is identical. That's the problem, is that yeah, if we start to go down, say, a dispensational path and split the Bible into pieces and put them into different pin uh, cushions, if you will, this one, this one, that one, uh, categorize it and uh, and split it into chunks and say, this is for you, this is not for you, this is for them, this is not for us, et cetera, et cetera. Very little of the Bible applies by the time you're done with the process. Uh, and that becomes a problem because if the Great Commission is no longer for us, uh, then we are in a world of hurt because there is no command anywhere, therefore, to transform the world in the spirit that Christ sent us out into. Uh, I believe that we are called to deal with the whole counsel of God. And that's why I think Paul made the statement that he was guiltless of the blood of all men because he did not fail to proclaim the entire counsel of God, the whole counsel of God, of which the Great Commission is a piece. And so we are to proclaim it, and not only to proclaim it, but also to walk according to it and obey it. It's one thing to say, I believe it, but it's another thing to say, and I also implement it. But you, your question really related to antinomianism, and I would say, yes, if there's an anti-law attitude, there's a problem with the Great Commission because it puts an obligation and a duty and a responsibility 
and those who name the name of Christ. Not only are they to depart from iniquity, but they're also to teach all things whatsoever Christ has commanded. And Christ commanded a lot of stuff that most people don't agree with. Uh, even Christians will say, well, he said things that really aren't for us. Uh, and that becomes a big, big problem because now it's not God's will that's done. It's our will because we become the arbiter of what scripture is valid for us and or our, t- or our time. And it's not God making the decision. It's us. And the second that we're doing that, then it has very little resemblance to the faith once delivered to the saints, which involved the whole counsel of God and walking by every jot and tittle uh, of God's word. Instead, we are snipping away at it. And, you know, we would be the first to criticize Jefferson for taking a knife to the Bible and building his own Bible. But in principle, too many Christians are doing that in different ways. Uh, our ways are justified. We can see the problem with Thomas Jefferson snipping the Bible up, but we justify our own process of uh, cut and snip. And that uh, that process of attrition leaves very little of the word left except the parts that we agree with. And at that point, uh, what we are, they are faithless uh, stewards and, uh, and rather worthless at that point because we're not doing what we're instructed to do. We're only doing what we like to do. Right. And I would say that most people, and, and and think you'll probably agree with me, don't understand or could even articulate the various theological positions that you bring out in this essay. And I would recommend people read it because the purpose of this discussion wasn't to replace them reading it. It was to sort of draw out more of the implications. But when people don't care about church history, when they don't care about doctrine and looking at how does it measure up with scripture, wouldn't that be sort of the quintessential definition of dereliction of duty? In other words, they were told to perform something and not only have they not done it, they don't necessarily think it's even important to reflect on if I'm doing a good job or not. Yeah, that is a fundamental problem. We actually have a passage of scripture that's dedicated to this, this issue. It's in, uh, Hebrews 5, 11 following. And the objection that the writer of the uh, letter says is, you know, uh, we have many things to say about these things and hard to be uttered or hard to be understood, probably better. Uh, seeing that you are dull of hearing and that word dull, nuthroi in the, uh, the Greek, essentially means uh, slothful in hearing. Uh, and he then argues, for the amount of time you've been, you ought to be teachers now, and you, but you still have need that someone teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as need of milk and not of strong meat. So he's essentially holding them re- accountable for not having advanced in doctrinal understanding. In other words, they're still children, if you will, or babies in the faith, and for the amount of time that they've been Christians, they should have advanced to the more complex issues so they can apply the whole word of God. And instead of that, they've regressed and stayed in what I call the perpetual kindergarten. I even have an article on the Chalcedon website by that name, the perpetual kindergarten, because that's what is inculcated in too many churches. We are always feeding the lambs and feeding the lambs and the lambs and the lambs, but not, not feeding the sheep any, any mature. So maturity is not a goal anymore. It's simply continuing to feed lambs and keep people at the baby level. And so there's plenty of milk. It's a giant dairy at this point, the church, but there is no meat market there in the sense that we're feeding the strong doctrinal stuff. And that becomes a problem because the then church stays uh, in the kindergarten level. And the times call for something much more uh, rugged, more robust, more mature, more adult, uh, more powerful because it's premised on the whole scripture. You know, people who are known as mighty in the scriptures, they didn't stay babies in the scriptures to become mighty. They advanced, they learned more, and they they meditated day and night on the law of God, as Psalm 1 put it, and therefore the blessings of that psalm accrued to them. So we actually have a moral obligation, according to this passage in Hebrews, to grow and mature, to uh, advance in the faith. Uh, in fact, failure to grow uh, is a problem because you will actually stand still, and you can't really stand still, you'll simply regress. So we're either advancing in the faith or we are regressing and our faith is eroding slowly from lack of use of our faculties, our moral faculties, our spiritual faculties, our rational faculties are all to be part of the process of discipling. 
And uh, if we are not being properly discipled by our churches, if we're being kept uh, fat, dumb, and happy, if you will, uh, and just warming the pews, which doesn't take too much skill, I've seen it done uh, quite well with people who don't learn anything, then uh, God's going to simply have to spoon feed us until another generation is ready to take on the uh, tasks that are uh, we're called to do, which involves this great commission that we're talking about. So we have a culture that really is into sports and into whether it's basketball or football or most recently, you know, with the World Cup with soccer. And somehow or other, when we look at contests like that or even to go to situations like wars, we would consider people failures and remiss if A, they didn't train for the contest or the war and B, if they had this attitude that they really couldn't win anyway. And one of the things that you bring out in the essay is when Jesus says to disciple the nations, to make disciples of nations, not just of the people in the nations, a lot of people have the attitude that says that's just so unrealistic. So that would be like the team that goes out and says, we know we can't win and um, maybe we shouldn't try ha- that hard anyway because we might get hurt. Yeah, indeed, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, we target failure and uh, we achieve failure, and then we justify failure and um, make it look good. You know, this goes back, of course, to the spies in the Book of uh, Numbers. Twelve spies went out to look at the Promised Land, Canaan, and ten of them came back with an evil report. They made they made a, a point of arranging the data, the evidence, to make it look horrible. Like bring the big giant grape vines and say this is what this is like. So you can imagine how huge these monsters are. We were like grasshoppers in front of them, and only Caleb and Joshua had a positive report, an accurate report that said uh, it's ripe for us to take it. Let's go on in. But the report from the other ten uh, caused a huge problem for all of Israel because. Everyone was fearful um, because of the, um, what I would call, and Dr. Rushman calls it too, false witness against the land and the inhabitants. It was designed to uh, cause us to freeze in fear, to cause the, 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 the Hebrews to uh, agree with the ten spies who were fearful and uh, uh, raised up this negative report. Uh, and it's funny because... Moses revisits that whole issue in the first chapter of uh, Deuteronomy, and we learn something about his uh, response to the false report and how it was generated by the uh, the ten spies who were essentially faithless. And they led Israel into, what, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Uh, that was the price to pay for failing to uh, do what God said and for arguing that it was unrealistic, too hard, too, it's impossible, the task is crazy, God is expecting uh, nutty things. Yeah, he can uh, wipe out the entire Egyptian army in the Red Sea, but we are out to lunch and we're not going to get anywhere uh, crossing this Jordan and taking Canaan. So you know, this attitude has been around at least at the time of Moses. And the faithfulness that is marked by it, again, is what? The fear of man. It's not fear of God. They didn't fear God. They feared man when they feared God. And consequently, uh, they were paralyzed. And the paralysis that set in is one that we see again today, uh, is that people look around and say, what a world. This world is full of darkness and evil and demons filled, etc. Therefore, uh, we need to just you know, hunker down, hide in the ghetto, and uh, let the evil pass and... Um, have God rapture us out of here or just sustain us through the trials and tribulations that are our lot in life. And we all become like Eeyore, you know, thanks for noticing me and things are bad all around. Mm-hmm. The, the problem is the reason, the reason that things are bad all around is because the church has lost its salt and its light and therefore it's become unfit for any real purpose. Uh, and therefore God bypasses us because we are not fit to be noble and faithful to him. So there's a lot of going on here, which relates to human nature and our laziness, our slothfulness, and our, um, what I call it here, analysis paralysis. Because instead of looking to God and what he has achieved and what he has promised and trusting them, we look to men. We walk by sight and say, aha, 
uh, as I walk by sight, I see that God's great commission needs to be adjusted and scaled down to make it realistic. We don't want God to look bad because he's uh, required this uh, nutty program. Uh, obviously, we need to fix the language, adjust the wording, the sense of these verbs here in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen in particular, and uh, adjust the entire program to something that we can handle and that makes does not make us look bad because we are uh, failing to do our task. All right. So no place in scripture does Jesus say, I am now going to give you the great commission. We, we refer to it as the great commission and the word great there. I don't know. You could say the excellent commission, the supreme commission, the sublime commission, the major commission. How does that compare with what you call the reaction of that mediocrity is an okay replacement for excellence. Right. Well, of course, what's mediocre is what's common, and everyone will accept something that's mediocre. It's something that's expected. It's something that's realistic, if you will. It's something that doesn't uh, knock down any barriers. It doesn't uh, exceed any expectations. That's what the mediocre is all about. It just flatlines at normalcy and the kind of things that we just deal with every day. And it's called a mediocre commission in this retelling of it because it is adjusted down from the magnitude of what's actually expected by Christ to something that we can handle, uh, something that we, is acceptable to man, something that does not press us too hard, that doesn't set the, our sights too high, um, but rather something that we can agree with and say, yeah, we can get behind that form of this commission of Christ because it's realistic. It's something that we could probably even get away with and do. But what's actually written in that passage is a problem, and that's recognized in several ways. It's either ignored entirely, it's given to some other group to handle, uh, or it is rewritten. And I think the rewriting is the most common thing because most Christians at least say, if it's in Scripture, we should probably take it seriously. But since we have exegetical power and authority to exposit it, we could probably adjust the wording, especially in English versus paying attention to the original Greek, and uh, make it look not so bad. You know, that's exactly what the 10 spies were doing in the book of Numbers, is that they were appealing to the reasonableness of uh, the situation. You know, it's not fair for us weak, uh, poor, unequipped um Hebrews to go in against all these uh, fortified cities. And it's the same situation with us. Christ is picking the weak of the earth to confound the the strong. And that's the reality. I mean, that's laid out already in 1 Corinthians 1. And the Great Commission is no less. God has chosen the weak here in order to, to conquer the world so that no man may boast. But we want to be able to boast and we want to be able to have the strength to do this in our own strength and since that's lacking, we refuse to walk in God's uh, promises or, according to his commands, we rewrite the commands uh, to make them palatable to our taste, to our willingness to obey, and uh, and we essentially gauge it to our st- level of strength as opposed to God's promises. What we need to do is walk according to the unlimited uh, extent of God's promises and God's omnipotence, because that's how God himself, Christ here, introduces the commission by asserting his total authority and sovereignty over all things. Uh, And for us not to acknowledge that, and then to suddenly shift verse 18 away and say, well, forget Christ and his authority and power. Let's look at our authority and power, which is minimal, and unable, therefore, to do these things. So Christ is trying to connect things that we know cannot be connected because we we don't have Christ's power. We have our own power. But like as Mark Rushton will always say, we're called merely to be faithful. And we're not even that when it comes to the Great Commission, uh, because we've ruled out any possibility of success, uh, especially with the fact that we are weak Christians. But that's why Paul says God is going to use the weak to confound the strong. And uh, because it's not going to be by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord in Zechariah 4, 6. The principle that's actually going to achieve the conversion of the world the discipling of the nations is the Holy Spirit driving with us. But if we're going to withhold it, then the world is going to be in a world of hurt and we are going to be uh, unfaithful stewards. So it looks like the, the people who adjust the instructions to be less than they are are hedging their bets 
Because if we say we can be victorious and somebody will point out you're not, see, you don't know what you're talking about. But it's almost like we want, we think God's going to grade on a curve and that the, the standard is based on what everybody does. And I, I like the reference to the spies because when they came back and gave their report, it's not like we should think that their eyes worked better than the other guy's eyes, but they were walking by faith, not by sight. Only Joshua and Caleb were walking by by faith. Right. And uh, consequently, and that's what we need to do. Our model needs to be Joshua and Caleb uh, on all fronts. You know, they entered the promised land. They're the only two of the generation that entered the promised land. That should tell us something, that there's a price to pay for arguing for a realistic approach, because that's exactly what the other 10 spies did, and Israel adopted their fatalistic approach to the task before them, which was to enter the land and take it for God and for them, their um, posterity, for their legacy. And they refused the heritage of God because it was too difficult for them in their opinion. But their opinion didn't count because you know, God was with them, and they were told God would be with them, and that wasn't good enough for them. And the same thing happens here in this Great Commission. It ends in verse 20, and lo, I am with you even until the end of the world. So again, we have Christ with us, the power of God with us in this task, and still we rewrite the orders and shrink them down to something more manageable or palatable or easy for us. Yes. So I know a lot of people within the church have this view that instead of conquering the earth and that all nations will eventually serve God willingly, that they have this view that we've got to get as many people onto the ark because what's going to happen is it's all going to be destroyed. And that's where they shift the view from nations, which is what Jesus says, to individuals. So they turn the gospel to a gospel of personal salvation and think that they are obeying what we call the Great Commission. So how how would you respond to somebody who thinks that it's unrealistic to to say that nations will ever respond to God as nations? Well, certainly in the article, we articulate uh, some obvious biblical examples of nations being discipled. In Isaiah 19, verses 18 to 25, we have the entire story of the discipling of Egypt and Assyria, two whole nations that were the most bitter enemies of Israel. I mean, Egypt tried to wipe out Israel, uh, threw all their male babies in the Nile. And Assyria, uh, Asher, Assyria, uh, which followed on it after Egypt's uh, demise, it was equally dedicated to the wiping out of God's people, the covenant people. And yet both of them are converted as nations. Uh, they, uh, and it's an amazing story in that passage. So right, right then and there, we have a, a picture of God's enemies, these heathen enemies of God being converted at the national level. And they're named as such as, uh, those that are uh, converted to God and his possession and his handiwork, et cetera, et cetera. And in Psalm 87, we have the same notion. We have uh, Egypt, uh, Babylon, others, nations, Tyre, and Philistia, uh, named as knowers of God. God's bragging about all of these members of Zion, and he's listing nations as those that know him uh, and that are now integrated into Zion, the people of God, uh, at the national level. Uh, and I think a third example I give is that uh, the Philistine nation not only is mentioned in Psalm 87 by name, but also in Zechariah 9-7, where the conversion of uh, the Philistine nation is so complete that uh, one of the cities, uh, Ekron, uh, which used to worship Baalzebub, is now uh, treated as a uh, integral part of the hierarchy of Israel that is uh, most holy. So the, the conversion of the nations is taught in the Old Testament. It's part of the accession of the Gentiles, and it happens at the individual and the national level. Uh, and if we even if those argue that, well, what about baptizing? You can't baptize a whole nation. You have to baptize individuals. Well, yes and no. There is a text in Isaiah 52, verse 15, that talks about the that God would sprinkle many nations, uh, which presumptively means that they'll be uh, 
baptized and, and cleansed from their, their evil acts. Uh, and it's nations that are the object, not just people from the nations, but the nations themselves. So we have a whole suite of evidence of national conversions, if you will. Now, again, it's always by individual conversions, but when the, uh, all the individuals are converted, you have a converted nation. And the Bible is uh, gloriously expounds upon, and God glories in the defeat of evil in this world that one we live in, and the conquest of Christ through the Holy Spirit being poured out upon all flesh, all nations. Yes. So I think the objection falls apart when you actually look at the data. And I think the reason that the objection even works when people say you cannot uh, convert nations, nations aren't converted, only individuals. The reason that works is strictly ignorance of what the Old Testament teaches. And most people are ignorant of the Old Testament to start with. Most Christians are even told to avoid reading it, to stay with the New Testament, probably Gospel of John, some Pauline epistles, and some uh, some Psalms in the Old Testament be about as far as they go. Uh, and the rest of the Old Testament is a strange book to them, and they are unaware of everything that God is putting into position uh, and unleashing at the time of Christ, who, who, where it becomes the climax of all the prophecies of Scripture, where they're going to be realized, that the conversion of these nations would be realized through the coming of the Messiah, who would then gather all the nations to himself. Uh, and that's the pro- profound promise laid out. Uh, Shiloh, unto him shall all the nations be gathered, right? So we have these promises in scriptures, and they are yet to be fulfilled, but they will be fulfilled through the Great Commission. And there's no reason to think otherwise, because that was our calling. That's exactly what the Great Commission is. It articulates our responsibility uh, as it relates to the fulfillment of all these prophecies where the nations become Christ's inheritance and his possession. Not just the individuals thereof, but the whole nations, if you will, are also to be uh, glorifying God. And that's why we have this fascinating picture in Isaiah 19 about Egypt and Assyria. Isaiah could not have picked two worse examples uh, that would have upset a Hebrew of his time than Egypt and Assyria, sworn enemies of Israel, and saying they would actually be listed before Israel as followers of God. So the question you have to ask people who reject the idea of nations coming to Christ and more than just individuals, because, of course, if the individuals of a nation are believing the commandments of God, are being faithful to the commandments of God, their laws will reflect the laws of Scripture. And you almost have to wonder how much of a victory Christ wrought if the outcome is it'll never happen that way. That really what has to happen is Jesus is going to come back and take those people who did they was what they were supposed to do as if this mediocre commission is what they were supposed to do. So I'm not sure what they posit and how they can even call it a victory if it's not a victory in time as well as eternity. Yeah, we get to that point where we say with more victories, with victories like this, who needs defeats? because we've rewritten what victory means. Uh, and that's become common. It's because we are lack so much victory that we've redefined victory as well as the Great Commission. I think that uh, that then gets baked into different eschatologies and different theologies. And in then being baked into it and being made a feature, not a bug, <laughs> not a failure, a defect, but a feature of a one's theology, uh, it then rationalizes and justifies that the devaluation of the Great Commission, the rewriting of it, the, the mutilation of it is my verse, but they believe we're saving you from a horrible fate because people like these guys at Chalcedon are talking about the Great Commission as if Jesus meant all those words seriously and we know better. Mm-hmm. We know we are more realistic. They are unrealistic. They don't realize the power of human sin. They don't realize how dark the world really is and uh, how limited our options are going to be. And therefore, we can have a holding pattern and just sit in our ghettos and, and hunker down. Uh, and that's where the church comes in. So we become very church-centric so that the church can, again, become ingrown. And this is one of the things that was complained about by people like David Brown or uh, John Gibson. Uh, and some of the scholars that I was appealing to toward the end of my article, where they looked out and said, most of the reasons why the Great Commission has not yet been fulfilled is because the church has withdrawn from its obligations and duties and has rewritten it 
and uh, consequently uh, the, the healing waters that should have been flowing out from us have stayed inside and grown stale and infected and uh, cloyed and uh, created a stench, if you will, because we're fighting amongst these ourselves instead of going out and uh, doing what the Great Commission requires. So when the church becomes ingrown and it makes itself the entirety of the kingdom of God, uh, then there's nothing else beside, outside the bounds of the church other than darkness and unregeneratedness and those poor people that we're not going to be able to reach because, of course, the Great Commission isn't as great as it seemed at first glance. Right. So they save us from all these obligations, and that's what the Ten Spies did. He said, we can just go back to Egypt if we want, or we can just continue to wander around here, but we're sure not going to cross the Jordan because that is a, a, you know, an impossible task. Well, the problem, of course, with impossible tasks is that's exactly the area where God operates. He yes. operates in the sphere of what's impossible. Uh, and then once you understand that how powerful God is, then the very air, instead of being full of impossibilities, is full of promise. And, and you operate in terms of that. You stand on the promises. You walk on the promises. You fight in terms of the promises of God. Uh, you claim nations for yourself. If William Carey had this attitude uh, that is so common today, uh, all of India would be in darkness. Uh, it would be a, a miserable place. And uh, so many times when we look at the missionary efforts of people who had a nation in their eyes that they wanted to take for Christ, uh, the very fact that they had that optimism, that confidence in God and in God's command that God wouldn't command it unless he meant it and he wouldn't have uh, commanded it without giving us the tools we need, which are spiritual ones, which will then knock down the uh, uh, various uh, strongholds erected against God and against Christ and his knowledge of God. They did things because they believed it could be done. Yes. And when we operate in terms of the promises of God and say they're precious to us and God is not a liar, we don't have to modify a single word of what Scripture says, we can walk in terms of it, then great things can happen. Uh, now, we also have to be aware that the process might be a long one. It may take us several generations to make various dents. But if we have faith in it and we inculcate that faith in our children and children's children, um, then mighty things can happen. It won't happen in the flesh. And I think that's the big argument that we have to understand. We're not arguing about converting the world according to the flesh and because we have a fleshly desire to do it and we're going to do it in the flesh. Rather, we're going to do it because we're being faithful to what God requires. We're going to use the tools that God gave us and we're going to pray through it and have the Holy Spirit do the lion's share of the work because all we can do is become the conduit for the Holy Spirit. The church is where the, like an, a lamp that holds the oil, if you will, that creates the light. And that's kind of our function. But if we don't even do that, then our lampstand is going to be yanked out of the place. Yes, and our and our faithful faithlessness with regard to the Great Commission, I think, is going to risk our lampstands from you know being moved out of their place, just like the Laodiceans were threatened with. Right, and the very fact that there's a command in Scripture to do anything should confirm for us that the reality will take place. And I know a lot of people will say, "Well, the reason that certain." doctrines are appealing is that the church just wasn't up for the task. Well, if the church wasn't up for the task, as I went to, I said before, why would Jesus tell them they could do it? It would seem, you know, if I tell a toddler, um, you'll be able to run a mile in under four minutes. And I set that as the standard. And I know that that toddler can't do it. Then what have I done besides lie? So we're really saying that Jesus was what? Just trying to give us a boost and make us feel good, even though we weren't going to succeed? Well, the problem is, is Jesus is guilty of hyperbole just to be a cheerleader to his church. Uh, that creates a whole host of problems for us, because how do we know uh, oh, the rest of the Bible is accurate and true about his resurrection, his ascension, his conquest of death? Um, all those things then are problematic because the commands are there alongside the descriptions of what he is and what he's achieved. And if the commands can be adjusted, why not the rest? You know, we would uh, resist any such deviation uh, because we would recognize instantly, oh, well, at this point we're tampering with scripture. But the reality is that Paul warned, he says, you know, people have itching ears and they will not endure sound doctrine. 
And that's why I say when you read that phrase, they will not endure sound doctrine. What that tells us is that sound doctrine is something to be endured. It's not necessarily easy to deal with sound doctrine, but it is important that we deal with it and that we adopt it and that we walk according to it and that we obey it where it has um, moral imperatives built into it, such as this commission here, because we're told to go and we're told to disciple the nations uh, and also to teach all things whatsoever Christ has commanded. So we have a threefold task, and it's not ours to rewrite the orders. But people have itching ears. They might prefer a different message saying, uh, just hunker down. You're doing fine. The church doesn't need to do any more than it's already doing. We pay for a few missionaries already in the mission field, and that's as far as the Great Commission is required, and we don't have to worry about uh, uh, converting the world or converting nations to Christ or preaching it or teaching all these nations everything that God commanded. First off, everything that Christ commanded is a lot of stuff because one, he endorsed the entire Old Testament and then he sent the apostles to finish out the New Testament. So for, uh, a very strong argument could be made that the entirety of Scripture is intended by that. And we don't know the entirety of Scripture. We tend to be ignorant of most of it. So how are we going to be prepared to teach the nations all things that Christ commanded? That's going to be a, a tough road to hoe if you don't even have it to teach, if it's not part of your mental apparatus to share with others. It's supposed to be. Uh, it's expected by Jesus, but we're not. And therefore, we have a fundamental problems uh, up and down with this area. You know, we're not going to do what God's commanded, and we're not going to teach what God has told us to teach, and uh, we're not going to disciple the nations because that's not part of our task. So we rewrite the task. We are under, and, uh, regard God as unrealistic if he thinks different. And the way to make God not look like a fool is to provide theological, uh, justifications that say, well, of course, that's not exactly what is meant here. It's hyperbolic. But once you go down the path that what's not, what's not meant, uh, where do you stop? That's a slippery slope. Either we take all, every word, uh, from God, seriously. And by the way, that's exactly what Jesus says to the devil in the wilderness. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And that includes these words in the Great Commission. We're to live by all these words and these individual words as they uh, are stand in the original Greek as spoken to uh, the disciples and to us by implication, but also, uh, as they stand together in a sentence which form, which, with meaning that can be ascertained with accuracy because Greek is a language that's actually quite accurate. Uh, it was chosen by God so that Paul could convey some of the most complex uh, thoughts about the, uh, about the God, about divinity uh, and the deity. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful language for this kind of thing. The late Marshall Foster often commented that Hebrew was a great preaching language, but for expressing very difficult, deep thoughts that have abstractions behind them and, and that that stretch the limits of language, Greek was the language to use. So we have some precision in Greek, and we're not taking advantage of it. We're kind of being allowed to be sloppy with the Greek here and allow ourselves to be swayed uh, because it suits us, and we like to hear a less message that says, you're doing just fine the way you're going. Don't change a thing. And, of course, I would think the devil would say the same thing. Don't change a thing. <laughs> because, exactly. Uh, because I keep, keep the nations much longer if you guys aren't committed to uh, discipling them. But if you went to disciple them, well, goodness, that would have been done in the spirit of God's uh, Christ having all power and authority, and he would be with you in that task. And that's the thing that Warfield brings out. He says, when this promise is added that, lo, I am with you in this task of discipling nations, even to the end of the world, it means the task continues till the very end of the world. And yes. that his being with us, he says, must throb a promise, not just that I'm going to be with you while you guys fail miserably because it's impossible, but rather there's a promise, if you will, with Christ's presence that things are going to be possible to be done. Greater things than these shall ye do, right? And right. So, so why do we have such a crabbed, limited outlook? And this pessimism is not consistent with the God that we serve uh, and that we worship and that we ought to be obeying when it comes to basics like the Great Commission. So instead of looking at the times in which we live and say, wow, we've got to be acting in obedience according to our professed faith, for a lot of people, it becomes, see, Jesus is going to come back soon because look how terrible it is. And it's as if they're saying, we fail 
and now we're going to be rewarded for failing. It's amazing how many times uh, people have deliberately torpedoed uh, Christian undertakings because they thought that was unspiritual, that it would not hasten the Lord's return, that uh, any effort to disciple the nations would go against the uh, predicted collapse of the present situation into maximum darkness, which would then trigger Christ's return, a rapture and return, and, and these other theological constructs, which, by the way, are quite alien to Scripture, even though Scriptures appeal to 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 justify them. Yes. So um, I know that Dr. Rashtuni was in the book, uh, God's Plan for Victory, the Meaning of Postmillennialism. He says, I've had uh, church leaders, by sworn testimony to me, say that they were de- came deliberately late to a meeting where a, uh, a denomination could have been shifted uh, toward Scripture instead of away from it, because they thought that their depart they thought it was unspiritual for them to stop the decay and the erosions, the spiritual uh, dis- decline of the church, because they thought that God had predicted. The scripture predicts that the church should go down in flames, and therefore they didn't lift a finger to stop it. Uh, and so this becomes, again, a self-fulfilling prophecy. And all such people who do these things, uh, they're not on God's side. They're not fighting for God's side. Uh, they, these, and this shows the danger of these false notions of the future, because whatever your view of the future is, is going to shape your current conduct, your current sense of obligation, responsibility, duty, and stewardship. And therefore, their notion of stewardship is we need to do everything that brings Christ here sooner and decline and, and uh, the uh, uh, complete cave-in of society is what's needed. And the churches should also become apostate. Uh, and therefore, we should not do anything to stop the church from getting worse and worse. We should... Hide our light under the bushel. Yes. And this is exactly what happens. And so the darkness increases not because of Christian faithfulness, but because of Christian dereliction and infidelity to their Lord. Because we justify uh, being part of the decline uh, because of a false eschatology. So... In closing, I, I really liked how you not only finished your essay, because you pointed out it's not like we have to get the celebrities or the prominent world figures to accept Jesus Christ and and receive him. You make the point, I think you were quoting from a commentary, John Gibson, saying that who this commission was addressed to was nobody particularly famous. Most of the people within the Roman Senate wouldn't have been able to name any of the people who were there as Jesus is ascending to heaven. So what does that say for the everyday person? Um, is their contribution important? Is their light sufficient, even though others might not deem their light very bright? If Christ is content choosing fishermen, I think we're in good shape. Uh, currently, we just need to apply ourselves. We have to understand that uh, the Christian faith uh, makes men mighty, not through any um, naturalistic thing, but through the supernatural, supernatural thing. It's he who is within us that makes the difference. Paul makes it clear that he would have been content to be an under oarsman, if you will. Uh, and that tells us something that it's important. Uh, every part that we play is important to God. Doesn't matter how small it is. We're not even allowed to despise the day of small beginnings or the day of small things, um, because God is present in these things. When I recently uh, spoke about these matters in Islahuaca, Mexico, back on November 15th and 16th, uh, I made a point, I uh, had a my laptop was with me, and I pulled the mouse out of it and was having suspending it from my hand so that everyone could see that the mouse was hanging there. And I said, this is a lot like the plumb line that's talked about in Zechariah 4. And what we learn about this plumb line is it's the cheapest tool in the toolkit that a builder had. It was used simply to confirm that the stones were being laid straight and vertical. And yet we're in t- told that God's seven eyes are on that tin stone at the bottom. And I pointed at the that the mouse hang, swinging there from my hand on the the mouse cable mm-hmm. and said, so all, so all of God's attention is on that particular 
piece of rock because it's being used to build God's kingdom straight. So it said, so despite the cheapness and the mediocrity, if you will, of the tool, God's presence is here because God has a keen interest in whenever his word is being applied. He's present in that. He's watching as this tool is used to straighten out the rocks that build his temple. And we're busy building a temple of living stones. And so God is just as intent and watching us, even the most trivial tools, God is fully present. His seven eyes, which means the entirety of God's attention, is on these things when they're used for his purpose. So we have no idea, any more than uh, Elijah's um, servant had any idea, that they're more with us than they're with them. And he had to have his eyes open to see that the hills were full of flaming chariots, saying, you know, we have resources that they don't have. By the same token, when we're building, even with a little stone on a string, as Zechariah is doing, we learned from Zechariah the prophet, or rather it was Zerubbabel was building it. Zechariah the prophet points out that God's attention is on that little piece of tin, even though it was so cheap and meaningless, but yet, though no one could see it, God was in the midst. And the same thing happens here. Even the most trivial tools used in a godly way for God's purposes to obey God, God's there in the midst, and we don't have to fear the result. We just need to be faithful, and then God will see the result through because he is sovereign. He has all the power and authority. He will use our efforts, and he will sanctify them because you know our righteousness is like filthy rags. But when God is working through us, amazing things can happen. And that's why the Great Commission we're told God is with us in that task. But if we're not even doing the task, is God even with us? That poses an interesting question. Because the promise, I'm with you even to the end of the world, has to do with with you in this, in the discipling of the nations and the teaching of all things I've commanded. If we're not doing those two things, is God even with us? Because we have abandoned our task. We have left the plow and we've looked back and doing something else other than what God has commanded us to do. Every Christian has some element of the Great Commission to do, even if it's in his own family, even if he's just dealing with his own child or a friend or something like that, he is still pressing the crown rights of King Jesus. And that constitutes a great commission. And even if it's only one person that is affected by it, the kingdom advances by that one person. And this happens on a, on a national level ultimately because the promises of God are yea and amen. They are not limited by what man can do. And they certainly cannot be stopped by man's efforts to uh, block the progress of God's kingdom. Everything that is uh, directed to stop it ends up only furthering God's kingdom. Yes. So listeners, it's called Mediocre Commission. It's in the November 22 Arise and Build. It's also on the Calcedon website, so you can read it there. And I would encourage you to really spend some time considering whether or not you've embraced a mediocre or a great commission. Martin, thanks for joining us. I appreciate you spending the time. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Andrea. All right. Listeners, as always, out of the question podcast at gmail.com is how to reach us. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.